Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I am your host, Joe Robinson, and I am joined, as ever, by Mr. James Spender. Good afternoon, Joseph. Welcome, listeners, to episode 11. Episode 11. Lucky 11. Can you 11. believe it? Lucky 11. Legs 11. Legs the sex, 11. The playing, sexiest of numbers. If we were playing bingo. Yeah. But we're not playing bingo. We talk cycling. Um, the Tour de France has just finished, James. Oh, yeah, that's quite. That's some big cycling to that's talk some about. Big cycling. Some of the biggest news. cycling. They don't use the word grand uh, without attaching tour to it and applying it to the Tour de France for nothing. Yeah, I so got how's... made to. I got made to feel really old, James, yeah. by this Tour de France because I'm still a young whippersnapper in terms of age. But uh, a 21 year old won this Tour de France. Tadej yeah. Pogacar. Um, yeah. He likes to rap. There's a video of him on social media where he does a little bit of rapping. But he's also very good at winning bike races, specifically time trials up mountains. Without out. Power, power meters or computer GPSs, he just rides really hard and becomes the youngest winner of the Tour de France for over 100 years. That's correct. We talked about him last episode, I think, 116 mm-hmm. years ago. Henri Cornet, or Cormet, uh, who was 19 years and... 352 days, I believe. So, uh, Podcar was, or is, 21. He's 22 now. Oh, is he he 20? oh yeah, did. that's true. What? I mean, what? That's not a bad birthday present, is it? But then, we... did you see, so he wins the tour the day before he turns 22, but the best thing was that in the interview, they were like, oh, what What a great birthday present. And he went, I, I don't like birthdays. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like right. birthdays. I just like winning bike races. But it, it was phenomenal just to see... People always, always bang on about one of the most exciting Tour de France being 1989. And I think that that may well be replaced. And certainly this year is up there because like 89, Fignon and Le Monde came down to this time trial. Not on the Champs-Élysées. That's mm. possibly the only way it could have been better. But it was on the plank of pretty women. It was on the plank, on the board of pretty ladies. There he flew uh, a minute down and then he finished up. Uh, a minute ahead of Roglic, who I would say, Fignon, say aerodynamicists, lost the Tour de France because of his ponytail. I would say Roglic could have helped himself by having a visor on his helmet. Or a helmet that fit his head. Or a helmet that fit his head. I'm looking at it being like, mate, come on, that just doesn't look at aero. That's like, you may as well have cycled around with a spade on your head. Like, it, it didn't look like it was helping him whatsoever. And he looked like it was uncomfortable as well. He mm. was obviously... By that point, he probably realised that he it was well beyond the pale for him to win. But he he looked really uncomfortable coming across the line, and not just because of probably the heartache and the body ache. Someone it looked like his head was in a vice. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to single them out, but yeah. Anyway, so there was that. But, but let's not take it away from Podgar. He rode, he rode like a beast. It was an excellent Tour de France, one for the ages. Slovenian Pogrog is yep. alive and kicking. I loved Mark Hershey from Team Sunweb who's an absolute animal for the three weeks. Actually, you know what? That entire team, Sunweb team, were class in their tactics. Sam Bennett winning green, that was an incredible thing to watch. Pete Sagan yep. finally being toppled after, what, eight years of just dominating the competition. And there was just so many little subplots. I really enjoyed Richard Carapaz from Team Ineos. Grenadiers in that final week when now yep. left, he just got let off the leash and he really made the race quite exciting. Leonard Kamner, there were so many young guys doing bits and bobs. But for today's episode, we got someone on who was there for those three weeks, that lap of France. 
he was doing his debut lap of France, wasn't he, James? He was. He was indeed, yeah. He fresh from the uh, British pro-continental scene. And yeah. from the team, team now defunct, sadly. The he now is defunct Madison Genesis. Yep. He goes within a year. He's now riding in the Tour de France with Arkea Samsic. And we've got Connor Swift on as a guest today. Uh, cousin of Ben Swift, the current national champion, riding for Ineos Grenadiers, a former national champion himself. Um He's had a very fast rise to prominence mm. and debuted at the Tour. So we thought we'd get him on to see how hard the Tour was, chat to him about a few, you know, a couple of his experiences. Did he make any friends in the peloton? Did he make any enemies in the peloton? Uh, we will find out. Uh, but before we do that, James, we're just going to do our little things we don't like and things we do like. James, I'm going to throw to you first because I know... You've got something you definitely do like. I've got something not that I like that I absolutely love, and it is Italy. Oh, harking Every- back to episode one, listeners. Oh, harking the back love- to episode one. I absolutely love Italy. I love it even more because it's the first place that we, as a magazine, I as a magazine journalist, have managed to travel to to go and ride my bike uh, this year. Other mm. than obviously, you know, riding in the UK. Not to knock that, but we went to the Italian Dolomites and we rode up. One of the steepest things, or most relentless things I've ever ridden up, uh, called the Paso de Fidea, mm. or Fidea, which allegedly Pantani rode back in the 90s when he was a wee little whippersnapper, cutting his teeth, and he got halfway up the climb and he said to his teammates, when does this climb start? I heard it's pretty hard. And I tell you, the first, <laughs> the weather was, was pretty warm, but it's very exposed. And the first part of this climb is just, you can stare, it's like a Roman arrow straight road that just continues on for 12%, just doesn't relent from 12%. And that for me, 12% is just the tipping point. And then it goes from 12 to 16 to 18. And all the way up it, you've got people that ride motorbikes up climbs in little groups very, very fast and then high five when they get to the top and have their pictures taken next to the sign with all the stickers on. They do. They should have to pass a test where you have to be able to ride a bike up a climb like that first before you mm. get a licence to ride your motorbike. So they were a little bit of a downside. Don't know enemy, of, enemy of the state, I, you know, I, ever had that, I had that same experience in the Galibier last year, yeah. Yeah. in which I was, you know, I got overtaken on the descent of the Galibier doing 70 kilometers an hour by a motorbike doing 100 kilometers an hour. Yeah. It was it's very, just, very scary. But what it did make me think, um, in all seriousness, is motorists and cyclists have a bit of beef between them. And I found myself developing a bit of an annoyance towards motorbikes in a, in a very um, uneven-handed, tiring them all with the same brush kind of way. So I can kind of see it. It was a learning experience. So I, I look at them. They all seem to me to dress the same, all seem to be on the same bikes. And then I just get my hackles up because one or two buzz past me, I kind of start despising all of them. So I can kind of see it from the motorist's point of view. We do dress kind of like, kind of like we dress sort of silly in road cycling and we all sort of look the same. So I don't know, maybe there's some, some learning to be taken away from there, but re-cemented my utter love of Italy. It was mm. fantastic. Excellent. So yeah, that, that's me. What about you, Mr. Robinson? Anything that's tickled your fancies? Um, well, apart from being in my new flat, which I wasn't in the last time we spoke, James, you can see me in the spare room. That's a bit of a tip at the moment. I'll just describe um, that. You've got a clothes rail from Ikea behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, exposed clothes rail. Exposed clothes rail. Yeah. Like you might be doing a small theatre production later and you've got a bike 
with a uh, oh yeah, it's quite a nice little posterior man satchel we've got there. Yeah, um, and yeah, still yeah, still moving in. So I didn't, I haven't been riding my bike for the last couple of weeks that much because I've been doing other stuff like building cabinets and oh, yeah? and uh, dressing tables. Um, but I did get to watch quite a bit of the Tour de France because I was just sort of knocking about. I had to manual leave. Um, and what I love at the moment is the fact that there's just an insane amount of cycling taking place between three weeks ago and the middle of November. So the usual cycling calendar, as we know it, that's across, you know, from January to, to November, is now taking place between August and November. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to have the World Championships. We're going to have the Giro, the Ardennes, the Spring Classics and the Vuelta. All in, what, like 50 days? I, c- I can't wait. It's a, a paradise for us cycling nerds. An absolute paradise. An absolute paradise. And things I don't like at the moment, I, nothing, nothing's really coming out of me because I haven't been doing much riding. Um, I'm not liking that it is getting a bit darker, obviously. It is. The yeah. months are changing. We're getting closer to... Uh, they, they do that, the months. They change. Yeah, late September now, and it's getting darker in the evening so the enjoyment of evening rides is going to be snatched away from us all too soon however and this is the golden hour as well i think sometimes of the seasons it's going to be snatched away from us soon from our sad cold trembling weak as kittens hands but in the meantime for the next couple of days i suggest you get out on your bike if you can at around about six ride six to eight take some lights out when you see the sun going down this type of time of year it just looks, the sky is so nice. There is something enjoyable about racing the sun. Yes. That's, about yeah. knowing that you've got, you know, it's getting dark and you've got to get back. And you start putting, you put the hammer down. There is something enjoyable about that. Yeah. So, okay. Is, I'll take it back. I don't yeah. like, I, I don't not like that then. No, I'm I mean, you know. quite a positive guy at the moment. Well, that's, that's great to hear, swings and rounders. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I'd like to um, say I'm glad to hear this, Joe. I'm glad to hear about your new house. I'm glad to hear you're feeling positive. And, uh, yeah, I joined in that positivity. And But there is one thing that sort of makes me, does make me a bit sad, and that was within the brilliance of Italy and visiting there to ride. We stayed in the hotel, several in fact, and witnessed the demise of the breakfast buffet. It's now served from within a Perspex castle by someone who is taking note of how much you're having. So it feels, re- <laughs> it feels the gluttony that used to be so, that you could, one could revel in, has now turned into shame. So it's very difficult. When you're like, the guy's like, look, mate, you've already had all of the cereals. Mm. Then you came back for the cake with the yogurt on the side. And now you're asking me for a fry up. Uh, yeah. And you're like, yeah, do you, my mind's worth. Do you really need egg free ways? <laughs> yeah. That is definitely one of the worst things that happened from COVID. I think when, <laughs> this, yeah, this year will be remembered for one of the greatest Tour de France's and the death of the breakfast buffet. Um, and on that somber note, shall we introduce mm. our guest for today? As we previously mentioned at the top of the show, it's Arkea Sam Six. Connor Swift. He just made his debut at the Tour de France, age 24 years old. He's a Yorkshireman with a very thick Yorkshire accent. And we thought we'd get him on just to talk through his experiences and what happened. So let's do it. And fresh back from his debut Tour de France is 24-year-old uh, Arkea Samsic rider Connor Swift. And we've got you 
for a lovely little Zoom interview, fresh in your kit there, as you've just got back from a training ride. Not because you're very on point with your branding. How are you doing? How is, how is your travel back? And have you got over the hangover of all the beers you had in Paris on Sunday night? Yeah, yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Um, obviously, yeah, I had a mega, mega three weeks. It was a great experience. Got back um, yesterday morning after the after the Champs-Élysées, straight into the pizzas, the beers. And then we had a uh, evening meal and a few more beers were drunk and a uh, bit of wine and whatnot. So, yeah, it was a bit of a late night. I think went to bed at two and then woke up at seven. So I didn't get much sleep. And then I thought that yesterday I'd be in a bit of a box and a bit tired, but I felt all right, to be fair. And then yeah. I had a, an all right sleep last night and I've kind of had yesterday off the bike and then I just did a quick hour today, just went and see my coach. Um and he said the same thing. He was like, oh, are you, are you tired and things? And I was like, I'm not too bad. But I think it might hit me later on tonight or tomorrow at some point, you know. Just going to be, felt like I've been hit by three weeks of uh, long long stages. Yeah. So a little bit of context to you, Connor. You were, what, 18 months ago riding in the Rydell GP, Lincoln GP, doing the tour series for Madison Genesis, the British continental team unfortunately don't exist anymore and then last three weeks you were riding the biggest and best bike race the Tour de France uh, for Arkea Samzik uh, you were riding with a former Grand Tour winner in Nayara Quintana so how was that experience your first ever Tour de France on a scale of one to ten uh, and also was it the hardest thing you've ever done yeah I, I think on a scale of one to ten um you know, it, it's, I think it's right up there, like, like nine or ten, because it's not like um, your, your first Grand Tour. Um, maybe your team might send you to like the Vuelta or the Giro, and you know, see how you do, or maybe just let you do two weeks. You know, being a bit of a younger, well, I'm not super young now. Um, you know, the years are ticking by, but you know, younger riders, they maybe the team would let them do two weeks and then pull them out for the last week or something like this. Whereas I've gone straight into the the Tour de France, uh, obviously the year that we're in um, with the COVID and everything, uh, it's one of the, the races that you know ev- everyone on every team that's entered in the Tour has wanted to do. Uh, so we yeah, had the, um, the the places were kind of um, kind of hard to get basically, and mm. yeah, just to be at the Tour de France, my first tour, and going there to actually have a job role of protecting uh, Nairo potential crosswind stages um just being the best domestic i can be for him um and not just kind of oh go to the tour you know see how you do i had a specific role uh so yeah pretty pretty crazy see you said about you went to the tour and it was and also you know people go to grand tours and you know go to find their feet you went there with specific roles and you not only went there to sort of look after nairo on the last day on the champs elysees you even clicked off the front in a breakaway, which is you. Uh, a lot of riders will often talk about that first experience of turning onto Champs Elysees and this amazing experience, this realization you've finished the tour. But you decided to go up the road with a Olympic and Roubaix champion. I mean, how how was that? How was was it, were you completely in the moment, or did you like did your mind realize? Oh, actually, I am in Paris here. This is the last stage of the tour. 
Yeah, obviously we, we roll we rolled out and the the pace is dead slow. You're basically just freewheeling for like an hour and a half. Uh, a bit too slow for my liking, to be fair. But um, yeah, I was kind of asking a few people in the bunch, like Luke Rowe, Dan Martin. I was kind of saying, um, you know, when does the actual racing kick off? Because I knew because lots of people have said it's not an easy day. You know, the last day, even though the lead up, the last fifty k is full gas. So I kind of, in the meeting on the bus in the morning, they kind of said, you know, it's uh, the last day, enjoy it. If there's a breakaway, follow it. Uh, we're going for Clermont Russo in the sprint. Um, so, yeah, and then I, after being told that, I was like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to be in the breakaway on the Champs-Élysées. So I started asking questions um, on the lead up into there. When, when does the attack start? And I basically got told that the yellow jersey crosses the line the first time and then bang, from then on, you know, the racing's on. So uh, I kind of made sure I was in the top top 20 or so uh, as we entered onto the Champs-Élysées. And then the planes came over. Uh, and I, in that moment, you know, the, they've got the red, white and um, blue smoke. I was just like, wow, it's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. I'm at the end of the Tour de France, uh, one of the most like kind of iconic stages there is um, and then yeah I went with the first attack from this EF guy I was on the wheels and then we hit the pave and I was like bloody hell this is um, this is a bit serious the the that that the 6k pave or 5k pave it's unreal it's not it's not bike worthy definitely not it's the potholes it's uphill as well, isn't it? Out to the Arc de Triomphe. No one knows. It's, it's not flat. It's not flat by no means. It's uh, yeah. It's a, it's a slog up, and then and then it's really rapid on the way back down. Um, but yeah, just in my head, I couldn't believe how rough it the surface was. And then I was following a few attacks, and then I kind of went a bit too deep, and I thought, right, I need to chill out a little bit here. And then a group of ten guys went, and they got a gap straight away, and I was like, no, I've missed it. Um, and then we did half a lap and then De Gent came to the front and he drilled it and I was like come on lad bring it back <laughs> and then he did he, he fetched it back and I kind of had in my head you know if this is coming back other teams are kind of wanting something to go now and uh, I went with the move after and then yeah that's when it kind of formed and I went away with Greg Van Avermaet and a couple of other guys and um, yeah, we didn't get very far. 20 seconds, I think, was the most lead that we had. Uh, we did a lap full flat out, uh, 20 seconds, and then I kind of knew in my head straight away, you know, this isn't going anywhere, but just uh, soak it up, just stay out front for as long as you can. And uh, obviously the, the the buzz of what normal crowds would be like on the Champs-Élysées, I think the, the roars would be massive and everything like that. But it was still super special, you know. the The sun was kind of setting a bit, uh, quite low light. Just yeah, just rocking round there out front, not being in the peloton. Uh, and I kind of had the thought in my head of, you know, my family and friends cheering on at home, on watching the TV, and that just that just gave me goosebumps straight away. Much better than the Lincoln GP, anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, so three weeks of riding the tour. Um, was it everything you expected? Was it as hard as you expected? A lot of, you know, a lot of guys as well come out of the tour and they come out heavier, they come out lighter, they go, actually, you know what, it was actually pretty easy or never again. What was your, like, sort of takeaway? Did you think it was as hard? Yeah, it was It was hard, like, especially going into the second to third week and, like, looking at the profiles and thinking, bloody hell, I've got over 3,000 metres for the next however many days of climbing. It was super, you know, tough 
tough route this year with the, the amount of climbing stages. What was, um, what was the hardest stage? Was there one that you were like, this is uh, getting a bit much? Oh, but yeah, what was the climb? That's the super, super steep finish. Uh, I forgot the name of the The, the Col de Luz? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that, that, that climb is the hardest climb I've ever done on a bike. Um, <laughs> I, I've already said to people, I can't, I, I don't think you can race up it. It's just a case of getting to the top. It's just ridiculous, like the gradients. It's just so, so hard. And then obviously you go up to 2,400 meters of altitude as well. Um, yeah, so that, that was probably the hardest climb I did in the tour. The hardest stage I did was maybe stage 14. And it, it wasn't physically, it was more mentally. I just kind of, just the, the fight for position in the bunch every day, you know, you get like little sprinters and little, little guys. I'm quite a big guy in the peloton and you get these smaller ones that just nick your space in, in the... I like to have a little bit of a space around me and then if you don't stay right on someone else's wheel, you'll get someone that goes into that gap and then you you find yourself... You can lose like 10 wheels in, in the peloton just from like letting one guy in. So it's just like that constant battle that you're having and I was like two weeks into the race and I just didn't really have the mental strength of you know being in the peloton that day. I went and sat at the back and then uh, Bora kicked things on off on this climb and then I suffered all the way up this 10, 11k climb at the back kind of just jumping around people that I was dropping and then got to the top and it was a little bit crosswindy and I just missed the front like bunch that rolled over and then um, yeah then I kind of was in the gruppetto for the rest of the day but then the day after because I kind of had that break of being in the peloton fighting all day I was just I was ready to go, you know, for the, mm. the day after. So that was probably the hardest mental stage. And then overall, I kind of feel like it was, yeah, it's hard. It's a, it's a grand tour. It was, yeah, it's probably the hardest thing that I've ever done. But once my job role's done or the racing's kind of done, and I naturally go into the gruppetto, or I've been told to go into the gruppetto, the that second half of the stage or my race kind of turns into like a sort of a training ride. Right. I've like raced for like the majority of the stage and then when it's the gruppetto time um you kind of at a bit of a, a a training tempo and you know just getting the just getting the stage done and making sure you're within the time cut it's kind of strange like just yeah it's just it's just kind of strange it's you know if because obviously I went in the gruppetto quite a lot of times with the amount of climbing there was and it's just weird you're like you're racing you're in the race and then it's like oh GC guys just float up up the road and then everyone else kind of just does a bit of a training ride to the finish. It's, it's, it's weird. Have a, a, a stage like the Col de Lowe's, um, something so difficult so late on. What goes through your mind when your alarm clock goes off the next day? Um, to be fair, like, there wasn't, because the stages start so late, it does my head in. It's like what, like one o'clock, like pretty much is the average time for a stage to start. So that means um, you do get a lay-in, but the, the the stage is finished late, and then you're not going to bed until like eleven o'clock. I wasn't eating until like nine o'clock every night, and back at home I eat at like six o'clock. Um, so I, I hated eating late, and then you finish eating, and it's almost ten o'clock, and then you go to your room, you sit on your phone for a bit, and then. It kind of takes a while for you to, well, it took a while for me to fall to sleep because you just ate a massive meal because you've got to get the calories in. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a, a weird uh, rhythm that you get into. And then, yeah, waking up the next day, it's not so bad because 
I didn't really have to set the alarm clock many times. I kind of just woke up naturally every day. Um, and then, yeah, just looking forward to the breakfast then. <laughs> so you're, you're part of a French team with uh, a Colombian core as well. How was it being, so like, how many of those speak English? How's your French? And how does it work as a team? Because, I, you know, not, people like, I know Naira, for instance, doesn't speak any English, I believe. And, and I don't know how your French is or your Spanish, but how is, how is communicating with that team? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so the, the, uh, Nairo can't speak any English. Um, well, he can, say, he can say good job, left, right, um, and thank you. Maybe that's about it. His brother, he can speak a little bit more English. You can have a little bit of a conversation with him, potentially. And then winner Anna Connor, um, he's he's a real quiet guy, but he can he can speak a bit of English. And I've only kind of just sussed that out in the tour, you know, just kind of <laughs> testing the water, throwing some random English words at him, and he gives me a response. So um, so yeah, th- those guys predominantly Spanish. Uh, the one that can speak the most French is probably Nairo out of those because he is really learning and trying hard to speak French. Um, so I can you cannot kind of ask like how are you doing or kind of if I'm wanting to say something to Nairo I'll say it in fr- the simplest French that I know. As in terms of me speaking French, I can pretty much understand majority of everything bike related and race related. Uh, at the dinner table when the French guys are speaking or the DSs etc I'm kind of 60% in the conversation like in and out um, and then I can pretty much reply you know to everything that I kind of get asked um, and I did think oh you know three weeks well pretty much a month away with the team you know I'm going to learn a little more new French but just the just racing every day you know thinking about the race doing the race and then just wanting just to chill out um I've, my, my, my French is kind of just maintained. It's kind of plateaued at the minute, um, but I do have a French tutor. You know, once a week, um, every t- when when I am back at home. So hopefully over the winter I can you know improve it. But I think at the minute I'm kind of just at the level where I can just I'm pretty much can just get by and it doesn't. Yeah. It's not really affecting it. The team's not wanting me to learn more or anything. I'm kind of just at a good enough okay level. <laughs> And you were you were te- you were in a room with Kevin Kevin Ledenois. How's can he speak English? Yeah, he can speak really good yeah. English. Um, so obviously, some of the French guys that can speak really good English, it's it's kind of almost it's a bit more of a mission to tr- me try and speak a bit of French, mm. or I'll speak French to them, and then they'll reply in English, and then I'll reply back in French. So it's kind of <laughs> it's they kind of they, they don't help themselves or help me trying to learn because they'll they'll kind of reply back in English. Warren Bargill, he can speak really good English. Um, yeah. And then all of the DSs, they can speak English. Race Radio is French, and then it'll be followed by Spanish. And then sometimes they'll throw in a bit of English. Um, and that's basically how it goes. The team meetings, they're all in French, and then it'll be followed by Spanish. And then at the end, once everyone's like kind of gone away and starting to get ready for the stage, the DS will say to me, or oh, did you understand all of that? And I'll say, yeah. Or if there was a certain word or a certain, you know, thing, I'll kind of say, oh, what what was that that you said? Um, and that's basically how it is. Yeah, just French, Spanish, and then a little bit of English on the side if, if needed. So how much time do you reckon you end up, because obviously you're with your team most of the time, including obviously during the stage, right? But there's a lot of time, you mentioned obviously being in Propeto. 
how much time do you end up being with other riders and what do you talk about to like wide away hours and hours and hours of monotonous pedaling yeah um there was only there's there was only probably two or three days that I, you know i thought oh it's, it's kind of a long day in the gruppetto all the other times you kind of in the gruppetto and um it's over before you, it's only like the last 45 minutes or so of the race um but yeah i don't didn't really speak speak to that many people i kind of got my uh kind of tried like each every other day sometimes i just like like you know you you've you've done what you've kind of done and you just want to get to the finish and everyone kind of just stays a bit quiet uh, there wasn't really many days, you know, where you was in the gruppetto and everyone was just kind of chatting away and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I kind of the, the the riders that I kind of spoke to that I've never spoken to before. There was like Oliver Narson, um, Tim De Klerk. Um, he's a former guest. He's a good guy. We love we love Tim De Klerk on here. His sound and obviously his brothers on on our team as well. Mm. Um, who else did I speak to? I spoke to Luke Rowe quite a bit. In mm. one day in the Gruppetto, um, he fe- he said, "Oh, I'll, I'll go back to the car for uh, a Snickers for you." He says, "Every Grand Tour I do, I take, I bring a big box of Snickers." I was like, "Oh, mega, yeah, cheers!" And then uh, he went back to the car, came back up, and he fetched me a Twix. I was like, "Oh, do you know when you're really expecting a Snickers? It's my favourite <laughs> chocolate bar." And then he fixed me a Twix and maybe it's my least preferred option, but I didn't say anything to him. I just accepted it. It was a bit of chocolate, definitely needed and definitely thankful for it. Um, That's some like gas, gaslighting mind tactics there. Just dangling that carrot and then changing it last minute. Yeah, so uh, he, yeah, he, he's, he was sound, spoke to him quite a few days. Spoke with Hugh Carthy, never in... No, oh, the Gruppetto, just one day Hugh Carthy because obviously he's a solid rider and he's normally up there. Um, and then who else was there? There was um, I can't pronounce his name. That Matiz Morik or do you know from oh, Bahrain? Yeah, from Bahrain. Bahrain, yeah, yeah, yeah him. Um, and then a few, and then a few other guys. Yeah. Did you get? Um, I always remember, uh, you know, Chris Jensen from Middleton Scott. Yeah, I remember him telling an anecdote on that. So he, on one of his first Grand Tours, he rode up to Luis Leon Sanchez to have a chat with him and got ignored. Um, did you get? Did any of the? Did you have? Did you get sort of like starstruck by any of the big riders? And did you try and chat to any of these guys? Because like you're 24, so there'll be guys in that peloton who were probably hitters when you were a fan in a kid. Was there anyone you were like, oh my god, and kind of like sidled up to him? Was like, oh yeah, you're right. How you doing? No, not really. But I'm also one of the guys that doesn't like. I don't like to introduce. You know, just go over yeah. to him and just kind of bug him, sort of thing. <laughs> But um, but no, I was quite. I did end up speaking to a lot, like Richie Port, for example. Um, you know, he he'd always every day he'd kind of say hey up to me, or we'd have a little bit of a conversation. Um, Michael Valgren uh, spoke with him a few days. We we're like under the same sports agency, so that was cool speaking to him. And then uh, I can remember, I can't, remember, I forgot the name of this CCC guy, but um, halfway through the stage. He kind of he got annoyed with me um, about wanting to stay with Bargill and Nairo or something. He got a bit annoyed with me because we like t- we just touched arms sort of thing. It was like, oh, you're always wanting to stick to the wheel, and I don't like to annoy anyone because there's well, I, th- I presume every single rider has someone that annoys them, and I'd hate for me to be you know that annoying rider of someone else 
because I've got an, I've got quite a lot of riders that in obviously it's three weeks long. You have, there's a couple of guys that you know come near you and like oh for God's sake just go away. You know there's just certain things they do like or how they ride the bike. I'm not a nasty person or anything, but there is just I think every cyclist has annoying people, and I and obviously I might be this CCC guy's annoying man. <laughs> but anyway, he said something to me. And then um, afterwards, when we ended up being in the group, Eto, I, I kind of just spoke to him really friendly. And then he replied sound back to me. So hopefully we're friends now and I'm no longer his annoying man. <laughs> Do you feel like there's, um, is there kind of like the Peloton uh, patron, patron like there used to be with, you know, Boonen or Cancellara? Is there someone like that? Is it a Richie Port character who rules the roost? Not, uh, I wouldn't say so much anymore because there's more... The only reason I know this now is because I got added to the CPA um, group chat um, and basically riders would say in there like, oh, what did you think of today's stage? Or say if there was anything dangerous, you know, to then be recommended on and passed on to the UCI and the ASO, etc. And then there was some days where there was people just flexing their opinions, etc. And obviously Tony Martin was the guy in that group. And, and then obviously there's big hitters in this group that's sending the things in and I was just in there and I didn't I just kind of stayed quiet didn't really do it uh, do or say uh, send many messages in but kind of when the big guys did send the messages in and then you've got other riders conflicting with that I was like oh god like you know like for example Tony Martin you'd say he's up there with being like you know big name he's had a load of results you know people respect him but then when you get another rider that conflicts with him um then that kind of shows like there's not just one guy anymore it's kind of a bit more of a level a level field so um so yeah yeah it's kind of what you would expect you know pretty much the leaders of every team they're kind of the guys that dictate things so another thing i wanted to pick up on was the your teammate Warren Bargill uh, actually got in a really interesting Twitter thread the other day about he said that he was appreciating some of the mountains that he saw. So him and Nico Roach said, well, Nico Roach said that of all the tours he's done, because there was less fans, um, he actually got to appreciate some of the scenery. Did you find yourself at points actually going, wow, I'm riding around some pretty awesome places in France? Uh, and, and like, and did you, did you notice that there weren't as that many fans or, and did you notice when there were fans, did you think that they were being respectful with all things considered? Or were there any points in which you were like, actually, this is, I don't feel safe potentially because of the, the, the virus threat? No, obviously, like my expectations of the tour, like from what I've seen on the TV and like other people's social media, you know, when they're there and they're doing like some video selfies or diaries and stuff, and you see the crowds and it's absolutely unreal, like anything any other bike race so obviously to be there and then at my first tour and they're not really be that you could tell how big the race was but there wasn't that extra buzz that you know that there is and that I expected there to be normally which is obviously understandable given the current circumstances but for example the sign-ons they was dead the the race finishes they was dead and majority of the climbs wasn't that busy but there was the odd time or the odd times in some stages where the the crowd was big um and then in those moments as well you could you could see like not many people had masks on 
um, a lot of people getting in, in you know in your in your face sort of thing and I can remember going up some climbs and you can smell the beer you know and you can smell how drunk some people are and um, yeah obviously in terms of safety when they're drunk on the mountain and they've not got their masks on and they're shouting in your face sort of thing then it isn't you know totally safe in our current circumstances but it was kind of nice to experience it at the same time as well um the two the biggest crowded stages i'd say was the time trial and the lead into the champs elysees um the time trial was just unreal like i think the whole route was just lined with people along the road and then the final climb was just packed it was it was that was one of the moments where you, you know the the crowd's kind of like pulling away when you're like riding through they're having to like uh go to the side sort of thing and that that was that was mega you know individual time trial just having that amount of crowd there and the amount of shouts i got as well it was it was crazy like go connor go swift um i couldn't believe it on that individual time trial i don't know how how people knew uh knew it was me but anyway yeah um but so i'm definitely looking forward to the future you know experience a, a real tour de france with all the fans and then obviously i know that a lot of friends and family would come out during the three weeks as well and i think if seeing those you know on the mountain you know you're suffering you're there and then you clock one of your family or one of your friends uh, locally i think that'll be pretty special and then obviously i miss not having like a dutch corner or something like that and uh yeah so talking about that last time trial, um, obviously, like you're completely in the race, but I think of all the results I've ever seen, Pogacar doing what he did on the Planche de Belfi and Roglic having what happened to him. I've never seen so many racers and riders like tweet after and like literally say, what have I just watched? This is insane. What was it like in your team bus? And was it like, was everyone just in this sheer disbelief at what had happened? Yeah, so it was on a quite a long transfer back to the hotel and we was watching it, uh, like all of us on our phones and we was kind of like joking and laughing and saying, you know, what happens if he like matches the time or takes it by a couple of seconds. And then when we was seeing the the virtual, uh, you know, GC like going away from um, Roglic, everyone was just kind of like looking at each other and laugh, like laughing, you know, he, he took 10 seconds, we was like laughing, he took 20 seconds, we were like laughing about it. And, but then when he went into like, he was 10 seconds up, we was like, no, just disbelief, we couldn't believe it. And then by the end, when it was, you know, 50 odd seconds, everyone was just like, you know, just, just shocked basically. It was just incredible. And um, yeah, just unreal, like everyone else thinks. Did um did you see uh much of Roglic afterwards like m- you know him milling around talking because he seemed really well well together considering the disappointment in all the interviews and he looked every bit the kind of um, magnanimous in defeat on the podium not like say Fignon stood next to Le Monde in tears was that a, some kind of facade like I mean did you see him about how did how did the t- and how did um, Yumbo see him as well because they must have been shell shocked. Obviously, I didn't see him after the individual time trial, but um, obviously that there's that picture from um, Dumoulin and Wout van Aert, you know, when they're just like looking up at the, uh, and I can remember seeing it as well when we was watching it. The their faces, they're they're just in disbelief as well. You know, can't obviously thought they've got a sealed Tour de France win, and then it 
go they're in they've got a minute advantage and then they come out with a minute deficit it's just you know unreal just crazy 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 and then the following day on the Champs-Élysées Roslick he was um he was next to Pojica quite a lot you know they had pictures hugging each other all this, there was a group of Slovenians they all had a picture together and they seemed to be chatting and talking just just like normal really I couldn't really tell much you know the day after and but to be fair, I didn't see many Jumbo Visma riders the day after. They might have just been at the back. Um, and I think another question people are kind of is on on people's minds is, you know, what about Sargon? Like, how do your colleagues, uh, how do they, you know, teammates and stuff? Did he come up in conversation? What were they sort of thinking about his tour this year and his future tours and that, what that might look like? Yeah, the only time he came up was every time we had a meeting in the morning, and then we seen that they were just sprint 40k into the stage and we knew it was going to be I think that's that was one of the things that made this race hard this year you know that battle for the green jersey because Bora just that that, that that battle made the days that should have been a little bit easier or the starts that should have been a little bit easier was super super hard because obviously they were trying to drop Bennett and um, yeah that green jersey battle will have added to how hard and why there wasn't that many normal like kind of tour de france you know the break goes everyone's just kind of a bit chilled um so yeah the, the team meetings kind of consisted of oh for god's sake there's a sprint at this point in the race or there's a sprint just after this hill and obviously everyone knew that it was going to be super super hard start so it was kind of a bit of a nuisance um, seeing those random sprints, you know, in into the third week of the Grand Tour when you just kind of wanted a bit of an easier start. Yeah, a bit of a nuisance. <laughs> One of the things you talked about earlier was the fact that you were charged with looking after Nairo Quintana. And in terms of chalk and cheese, I couldn't think of many more people in the peloton. You've got a young Yorkshireman, quite tall, uh, you know, and then a very small... Colombian man born at altitude uh, and neither of you can speak a common language yet you were charged with protecting him and it seemed like you really kind of bonded because I've I've spoken to actually British pros before that have raced with Nairo and they've said that they never really got on with him they couldn't talk to him he was like this weird clothed but he did his own thing but of all the people you seem like you're uh, you've got through to him with your Yorkshire charm how was how was looking after him was it daunting for you knowing that you had a, a Grand Tour winner on your wheel and that if you missed that crosswind, that could be his tour over? And how was that relationship? Yeah, so obviously the, the first time it kind of clicked together was in Paranese when it was a crosswinds there. And then obviously afterwards, the team was super happy. Nairo was super happy. And I think that was kind of what kind of got me my spot in the Tour de France this year, knowing that there was some crosswind stages. So, uh but I must say straight away, the guy does not stop thanking you like after the stage, even if it's just you've just got him a bid on for the day and that's the only job you've done. He'll just be like, say thank you loads. He'll give you like a bit of a hug or a bit of a you know fist pump or something like this. So um, when you do a, a, a bigger job for him, he's even more you know grateful for, for what you do. But um, but yeah, I think stage seven was the big the big test. You know, Bora kicked things off going for this bloody green jersey and kind of the peloton like split in two that day there was what 90 guys 80 guys up the road and then we had crosswinds later into the stage 
and it was a bit of an awkward wind all day. It wasn't going to really kick off again like it did at the start, but Naira was super, super nervous. We was in the first week. He didn't want to lose any time. And he was just constantly pushing me all day, you know, wanting to be in the top 15, 20 guys. We'd, we'd um, ride out in the wind, come in, and then as soon as we drifted back, he'd be like, Connor, Ali, you know, left. I'd move back up in the wind. And that day I spent load, a lot of pennies and it was the day afterwards, it, that was the day that the, the video got released online and went a bit, blown up a bit quite well. And, you know, him hugging and thanking me afterwards. So, um, so no, it's, it's just, it's nice to work for someone, you know, that really appreciates what you do. Um, and, um, yeah, obviously not a common language there, but it's just enjoy, enjoy riding for him. The only stage I did maybe mess up was, um, what was it? Stage 10. The, the stage was going fine, everything done the job, but going into the final, there was crosswinds going over the bridge you know that finished it was that flat oh, yeah, day yeah, that yeah, Sam Bennett won his first really stage that's it yeah and yeah. he he crashed 30k to go it was a super nervous stage as well lots of loads uh, small roads road furniture and he crashed 30k to go 30k to go we got told that we needed to be at the front because we were about to go to a village that had loads of left and right he crashed I stopped waited and Warren Bargill crashed and another teammate crashed. And I kind of glanced and then someone had a go at me for stopping. And then when I glanced back, I thought Nairo was still on the floor, but it was Warren. And I glanced again and I was like, Nairo's not there. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I was like, this is like my job role, getting back to the bunch and the guy's already set off. So I was like flapping around, got to the back of the peloton. We're hitting all these left, right sections and it's like an elastic band effect. I'm thinking just about the team meeting in the morning, you know, we needed to be at the front here. Nairo's, it must be in the middle of the bunch, solo, trying to move up himself. And I'm thinking I should be, you know, at the front with him. And I'm at the back flapping around, stressing about getting to him. And I kind of like wasted a lot of, you can waste a lot of energy, you know, stressing about things. And your perceived effort is um, like through the roof, you know, when, when you're kind of in that mental state as well, compared to what you're actually physically doing. So I kind of caught back up and then I kind of had a bit of a breather, made this split in this crosswind and I was like, right, where's Nairo? We was coming to 16K to go and then a crash happened and I came to a stop. I didn't crash, but I kind of had to unclip in things. And then um, he he made the, didn't crash or anything. And then I tried to get back in on, but there was like no chance. We just hit this crosswind section on the bridge. And I kind of thought, oh, you know, I've cocked up here. But um, he he uh, he'd been moved up by another teammate, and I think that's the reason why. You know, it's not so. It wasn't solely down to me that day. There was two other guys on the squad that had similar roles to me, and obviously one of those um, guys made sure he was in the front bunch. You know, when I wasn't there, so there was there was there's things that can happen that's t- totally out of your control, and that's the importance of having teammates as well, and other riders that can do similar sort of things because. I didn't kind of do my job or how it was planned to go that day, but he still ended up getting to the end of the stage and didn't lose any time. So not totally thanks to me, but yeah, that's kind of how the cookie crumbles. I mean, that's obviously those moments just must just feel at the time, like heart in mouth, like you just described, just like frantic. And I'm assuming you probably don't want too many of those, but there must've been some serious highlights for you. Uh, and you touched on one, the Champs-Élysées getting in a break, breakaway for a while on, the, on our screens. 
other than that, which moment would you most like to relive? Or will you be telling your mates about the first time you go and see them down the pub? Um, yeah, I think the Champs-Élysées ones, you know, def- definitely up there. Uh, this, that, was, that was super, super special. The individual time trial, like I said, I love that. Um, the first stage, I really did enjoy that. It was, you know, it was wet. I enjoy when it's wet conditions. There was there was crashes everywhere, and it, I kind of feel a bit more confident, like on wet corners and stuff. I think from the tour series that I've done, I I, I always like the wet rounds. So um, I, even though there was crashes, and I didn't obviously, you don't, I don't want to wish crashes on anyone. Like um, I did feel confident that day and felt good and lo- loved that. It was obviously the first day of the Tour de France as well. But um, a day that kind of sticks out that I'm like kind of proud of was um, the last day in the the Pyrenees, the last mountain stage of the tour as well. The day before stage 17, I had a shocking day. Like we went up the Madeleine and the Columbia, I think it was. Um, and straight away at the bottom of the Madeleine, I was suffering. And um, yeah, I was in for a long day that day. Super, super tough. And then, I, and then the next day, the very last day in the mountains, I was great. I was like, I was, I just had some goat legs. It was, um, you know, every man and his dog kind of wanted to be in his breakaway. Jumbo Visma rode a super, super strong tempo on the first climb and pretty much all day. It, it settled down a bit, but they rode a strong tempo all day. And then guys, I think there ended up being 25 or 30 guys in the breakaway. Guys kept on coming back all day long and then guys kept on getting popped out of the bunch all day long. And we went to the final climb of the day that, you know, had the gravel sector at the top and I looked around me and there was only 40 or 50 guys left in the bunch and there was only, what, four or three guys up the road the day that Kwiatowski won. Um, so yeah, just, just to be, you know, the last day in the mountains, make it to the final climb of the day, there's only, you know, four, a small bunch left um, and just have kind of like good legs. I didn't make it over the top of the last climb of the day but I kind of thought I'd, I'd done enough. Um, I was I was just super proud, you know, happy with my performance. Obviously, it's my first Grand Tour. It's the first time I've raced that long on a bike, and to kind of have have good legs at the end of the the race, it's it, it bodes well for like the future and gives me confidence as well. You know that I can handle it, sort of thing. So yeah, I was I was just kind of happy with that. Just just the legs on that day, really. And if there's one piece of advice that you could give yourself for Connor Swift three weeks ago what would it be um yeah it'll it'll probably be that you know you can have a a super super bad day on the bike but you know after the race you should just kind of forget about it because the the following day you can have good you know good legs you you don't need to worry or stress that you're not going to make it through the race you know even if you have a super bad day in the, the first day of the the first week of the tour or a couple of bad days even then you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in for, you know, that sort of slug for the rest of the rest of the Grand Tour. You know, mm. your body adapts and you change, and you can change like mentally as well. You kind of just just change the way you think and just forget about forget about what's happened. It's done. You can't change anything about it in the past. Just have an impact on the future and just think positively. And um, yeah, some good legs will come. Decent. So, where, where are you off to next? What's your next race? Have you got? What kind of, what's your calendar look like? Yeah, so I'm uh, at home for a couple of weeks, you know, have a bit of rest this week and then 
turn over their legs a little bit next week, I think. Um, but my next race is Brabanson, this Belgium Monday. Um, and then I'll do Amstel. Um, and then I'll do Le Pan and then finish with Paris-Roubaix. So, um, is that your is that your Roubaix debut, isn't it? Yeah. How are you looking forward to that? <laughs> yeah, I'm super, super looking forward to it. And I'm just... Look in the winter as well. Yeah, I, I think it's going to rain, and I hope it does because you know, imagine that you know, it's we've had this big drought period for ages for Paris Roubaix. Everyone wants it to rain on that day. So if it's my first Paris Roubaix and it's a wet one, it'll be epic. Yeah, I love it. But but I'm, it's very much likely as well. You know, twenty fifth of October. Um, yeah, it's going to be mega. Well, it'll be like riding around Yorkshire. It'll be fine. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, um, we'll let you go now because you're a busy man. You've just got back from the tour, so you should probably go like have a nap watching Come Dine With Me or something. So, Because <laughs> that's what I'd be doing if I'd just done three weeks of racing. Thanks for coming on. Um, and yeah, good luck for the rest of the season in Roubaix. Yep, cheers for having us. Thank you very much. So, Connor Swift, ladies and gentlemen, what an incredibly gregarious fellow. Very articulate and chatty for... A cyclist not that cyclists shouldn't be but he has just finished three of the most arduous weeks of his life mm. and within 48 hours we have made him sit down in his kitchen and talk to us through zoom and answer annoying questions about what was it like to ride in the tour de france he was it was he was good value at the tour he was good value as a guest so our thanks to him and he was a really interesting guy like i liked his perspective on you know, just what it's kind of like to be the new kid in class. And mm. I love love the idea that out of everyone in the peloton, you can hear like little Richie Port going, Oi, I don't have any time for that. Which, I mean, you can, yeah, a bit like, you could always kind of hear uh, Cadell Evans back in the day. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> the, the, authoritative, the authoritative German bark of Tony Martin, uh, mm. former policeman, and a man, as we established in an earlier episode, answers the phone hello tony martin yeah so and there's only one animal on the earth that has a wider mouth than tony martin and that is the basking shark (laughs) both feed in very similar ways yeah that's how that is how tony eats he opens his mouth and just absorbs all the minerals in the air as he's cycling (laughs) off of his very drooped bottom lip yeah Um, he's still fast though isn't he bloody hell he's still fast Still really powerful really fast for someone who i suspect is in their mid-50s now because he does feel like he's ridden a bike in the pro peloton for seemingly ever yeah um, but that was yeah that was good we enjoyed having connor swift on mm. uh, a little bit of information about the next episode a eh, james oh yeah good fun because uh, yeah. we've already recorded the in- interview for that we had a former england and premier league goalkeeper ben foster on the show ladies and gentlemen now you might be like who's that well, he's played eight times for the England football team, currently plays for Watford in the Championship, was playing in the Premier League last season. But it turns out he loves cycling more than me and James, more than you, listener. He is the quintessential, for want of a better word, mammal. And he wanted to come on and talk to us about his new cycling YouTube channel and just about how much he loves bikes and the fact that he owns lots and lots of Specialized and lots of Rafa and lots of other stuff. So yeah. that's a good interview. I've already recorded that. So his, look, his, look out for that one. 
I've been told, I've, I haven't heard it yet, so I'm going to be listening too to that episode, so don't expect much from me. I've heard it's a good interview. I have also seen his Instagram, and he does have a good, he's got a good choice in bikes. Yeah, he has, I mean, he has the current S-Works Tarmac Venge, uh, Tarmac SL7, the replaced Venge. He has the old Venge, he has the old Tarmac SL6. He has the Villiers Cento 10 Air in the Romana Bronze That's right, finish. yeah, the Romato colour, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he has oversized jockey wheels on all of his bikes, so he knows what he's doing. That's the one, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> that's money where your mouth is. What do I need? I need oversized jockey wheels from Ceramic Speed. I bet he's dipping and stripping and relubing his own chains. Did you ask him about that? Well, I won't, I won't let us into too much knowledge, but we did. I did see him dripping something into some lubricant uh, <laughs> during the interview. And it could have been a twelve-speed chain. Well, there we go. We'll uh, we'll, look, uh, we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, um, leave us a review, comment, share the podcast. Um, if you're really enjoying what we're doing, let us know. It's always so nice for us to hear that we're doing a good job, um, and it makes us, you know, the better, the more successful we become, the better our episodes can be, the better ep- uh, guests we can get, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and the more plants James can buy in his elaborate apartment, as I exactly, can see and him. and the, the smaller a drain will be on the National Health Service in the future when we develop deep, deep depression from hearing nothing back from anybody, just feeling <laughs> like we're living in a void. Do you feel like you're living in a void sometimes, Joe? Um, I feel like I'm living in a box, living in a cardboard box, <laughs> <laughs> having moved into a flat, but. <laughs> Well, on that note, I look forward to seeing uh, some more developments inside your cardboard box next episode. That's a strange way to say goodbye, but I'm going to say it anyway. And also, goodbye.